thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me because I think we're going to have a very illuminating and, I hope, fun episode today as we build on last week's episode by looking at comments by Tennessee representative made during the last legislative session who is a licensed attorney. I think it will be helpful to you to hear the kinds of things that are said by some of our legislators about law, legislators who are lawyers, to understand how messed up our understanding of law is and the American legal system. And what you're about to hear and the explanation I'm going to provide to you of what you hear will help you realize that you cannot trust lawyers to know anything about law and the American legal system, particularly a common law legal system. Now, you may recall that last week I addressed the difference between a common law legal system and a positive law legal system. And the difference, you may remember, is what each understands the root of the law to be, its foundation. Now, next week, I'm going to speak more to the root of the common law system. But in sum, let's just say for today, its foundation is the creator God of the Bible and his law. Whereas the positive law legal system has its foundation in man. It's a strictly made-up, posited by man legal system. It's either usually based in the reason of autonomous man, that our reason is the fount from which law springs, which is obviously silly because reason operates on the basis of given premises and is the method by which we uh, arrive at conclusions. So reason is a process, not a foundation. But anyway, that's what we think. Or the alternative in a positive legal system is in history or experience, meaning that over time uh, we learn that, well, this works best, this doesn't work as well. It's strictly pragmatic. Now, for those of you who listened to the episode where we talked about the Western legal tradition, you'll know that I talked about history. But the difference between saying law is rooted in history and, and a common law legal system that's rooted in God and history is important is that the positive law system says that history is not the activity of the providence of God and his working out his law through his people in the course of development. Rather, history cannot be judged because it has no meaning but such as we give it. That's the positivist look. So we say this works or this doesn't work based strictly on our independent judgment and not based on whether something was just or unjust, righteous or unrighteous. It just worked or it didn't work. It's a very pragmatic understanding of law. Now there are a few other things you need to know about the clips I'm going to play before I play them and then dissect them for you. The first is, appreciate this, the person testifying is not a Democrat. 
but a Republican. And he'll tell you that he's a Christian. And maybe he is. I don't know. But I can say this. His understanding of God and who God is has nothing to do with civil law and human government. So he is, as a practical matter, an atheist when it comes to law and government. Now, I'm not trying to damn the person here because we all, from time to time, operate as practical atheists when we don't connect everything in our lives and our understanding of everything back to God. Remember, that's what Romans 11.36 is. Everything is from God, through God, to God. So if God does not inform our understanding of what things are, what they're to be used for, and the purpose for which they were created, then in that moment we've become practical atheists. Secondly, you have to appreciate the context for his remarks is the Marital Contract Recording Act that was before the House back this last spring. And his testimony as a lawyer, one of the few lawyers on this committee, effectively killed the bill. So you need to appreciate that. Thirdly, you need to appreciate what the Marital Contract Recording Act is. And what it does is it adds a provision to Tennessee's marriage licensing laws that allows a man and a woman who have exchanged marital vows or promises to go to the courthouse after they've entered into the marital relationship and file an affidavit in which they swear under penalties of perjury that they've married each other as husband and wife. Now, this is what's important. This bill rests on an understanding of a common law legal system. So when you don't understand a common law legal system and you operate under a positive law legal system, this bill would be terrible to you as it was to this representative. And here's why this is a bill resting on a common law legal system because you don't have to get a license, a permission slip from the government to marry. The bill rests on the proposition that the marital relationship between a man and a woman, I'm not talking about two men or two women because in the common law there was no such thing as a marital relationship between two men or two women. But the marital relationship between a man and a woman doesn't arise and exist only because the government has licensed that relationship as if in the absence of any license, there would be no such thing as marriage. Rather, the marital relationship between the man and a woman at common law arises because of the nature of the promises they make to each other. The common law simply held that these promises between the man and a woman in the nature of husband and wife should be recognized and enforced as a means of protecting and honoring the marital relationship and the enforcement of the duties associated with the nature of the promises made. So the common law treated these marital promises the same as any other type of private contract between parties who make, who make promises, giving rise to rights and duties between them, like, for example, an employment agreement. But because in this case, the promises between the man and the woman were of a marital nature, not an employment nature, it was called a marital contract. Okay. Now, the reason this is important is because in 2015, the United States Supreme Court said that state license statutes create marriage. Now, see, that's a positive law system that says the government creates marriage. And so the court said states are required to redefine marriage under those statutes 
to predicate the marital relationship on there being two people, any two people, not a man and a woman. So the Marital Contract Recording Act is a means by which Christians can bear witness to what the Bible says about the marital relationship and not bring themselves and their ministers under a state licensing scheme that has them bearing witness to a state understanding of marriage that's false. We can't affirm that marriage is any two people because that is affirming what is not true. Yet that's what we've been doing since 2015. So this bill is, is, is in a, a way for the Christians to bear witness to what they believe. And if you want to go get a license, go get a license. So with that, let's hear this clip from the legislature. It's the first of two. Um, I practice law and I'm an attorney. I'm an attorney by virtue of the fact that I can be hired by someone that then if they hire me, they can have attorney-client privilege with me. The only reason why they have attorney-client privilege with me when they tell me about their particular case is because I have a license to do so. That license proves that I'm an attorney. It's a self-proving document that the state authorizes in order for me to be called an attorney that I can then tell someone else that their communication with me is privileged. Without that license, my relationship with my particular client is none. I don't have that attorney-client privilege. That's just a fascinating statement to me. Um, and I'm going to read from a letter from a law professor friend of mine. He teaches common law in law school. And he listened to this testimony. And he wrote this letter for me to give to members of this committee. And, he's, and he said this about that part of the testimony. Surely he, referring to this legislator, must be aware that the attorney-client privilege predates state licensure of attorneys in American law by several centuries. <laughs> you know, we forget that people practiced law before there were ever licenses issued. William Blackstone, whose commentaries on the law of England, and was just cited by the United States Supreme Court in a couple of decisions back in June, he just didn't have a license to practice law, but his commentaries were were read and studied by everybody who became a lawyer. It was essentially an apprenticeship type of thing. And, and you know, there were law schools, but you then apprenticed with a lawyer. And what created the attorney-client privilege was the nature of the relationship. So in other words, the attorney can play golf with his buddy or hire his buddy to mow his yard or paint his house. And it's not an attorney-client relationship. What creates the attorney-client relationship is the nature of the promises and the services being offered. Now, I'm going to come back to this, but, but there are other privileges that exist, such as husband-wife testimonial privileges, that they don't arise because of some government license. So, so the incompetence of this lawyer with respect to understanding the history of his own profession is astounding to me. But it gets worse. Listen to the second clip. Your bill, when you file it and you don't have to file anything with the state, and this is a document between two people and two people only, don't create any relationship with the state. Therefore, that relationship that's recognized in many different professions, not only lawyers, doctors, real estate agents, contractors, 
you have a license from the state that provides you certain statutory protections because of the relationships that you enter in with a third party. When you're not a contractor, when you're not a real estate agent, when you're not in a lawyer that has a license, I can be charged with the unauthorized practice of law if I indeed tell someone that I'm a lawyer and provide information to them that their communication with me is confidential and attorney-client privilege. Now, now this is again astounding to me. This is what the law professor said. Quote, this representative seems to misunderstand the origin of contract, privileges and duties of confidentiality, remedies for breach, and much else. Now, what the professor is speaking about here is the fact that this representative has somebody come into his office, wants him to um, draft for him a real estate purchase agreement. He wants to sell his house. And he says, I don't have a real estate agent. I want you to draft a contract for me to sell my house to Mr. X. And the lawyer says, okay, that's fine. Here's my employment representation agreement. And uh, I get paid so many dollars per hour. And then you also reimburse me for my out-of-pocket costs, like any filing fees, uh, recording costs, you know, photocopy costs, those kinds of things. And so the client signs it. The attorney drafts the uh, sale purchase agreement and gives it to the client. The client gets it signed and uh, they close on their house transaction. But the client never pays the lawyer. Now, according to this representative, the state was not a party to that contract. Now, he would say, well, well, yes, they were because I was licensed as an attorney. But the other party was not licensed to enter into that kind of employment agreement. The license the attorney has is to practice law. What he's wanting the court to enforce is a common law contract of employment. And the state would just simply be enforcing that contract for breach for non-payment. Do you see the difference here? We enter into common law contracts all the time. In fact, the lawyer drafted a common law contract between his client and the purchaser of his client's home. The state is not a party to that real estate contract because it didn't license his client to sell his house, nor did it license the purchaser to buy the house. So according to this lawyer, the real estate contract is not enforceable because the state wasn't a party to the real estate contract. So when the guy sells his house and then the check bounces, well, he's just up the creek, according to this lawyer, because these parties weren't licensed by the state to buy and sell their houses. Do you hear how preposterous, incoherent, and might I even just dare to say, no, I won't say it. I, this is just astounding to me. It, it is inconceivable that a lawyer who enters into common law contracts, drafts common law contracts for his clients, would sit here and say there is no valid binding contract for which the, the state can step in and enforce obligations unless the parties have been licensed to enter into that contract. So in other words, go rent your condo at, at Pigeon Forge or, or the Rocky Mountains or someplace like that, Jackson Hole, and, and then when they want you to pay, just say, well, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't licensed to enter into this. And, 
you know, you, you, you may not have been licensed to actually enter into um, this, this rental agreement. I mean, Airbnb might just go right down the drain, my friends, because those are private agreements between me and the person who's renting out their house or condo or bedroom. Isn't this amazing? This passes for competence in the legal profession and among our legislators? Do you see that when this is the prevailing view and is embraced by other legislators, we have moved from a common law legal system to a positive law legal system? Now, thankfully, not all legislators are so gullible as to believe what this lawyer said. And I want to end with a positive clip from Representative Tom Leatherwood, who was the sponsor of the bill and who was for a number of years the Register of Deeds for Shelby County, Tennessee. Listen to what he has to say. You know, probably the biggest purchase most of us will make, especially with the real estate market the way it's going right now, is our homes. Uh, you don't have to have a license to sell your home. I've sold one. I did it for sale by owner. Uh, you don't have to have a license to buy your home. I bought two. So we don't have to go to the state and ask permission to buy a home and pay them 80 bucks and get a license to buy your home. So there's no license there. And the deed to your home, uh, this has been surprising to some, but it is registered deeds for 18 years. The deed to your home does not have to be filed. Uh, the mortgage to your home, by law, does not have to be filed, but the bank will require it to be filed to make sure you're not making multiple loans that they don't uh, get multiple loans that they're unaware of. So the state does recognize contracts between people without having to get a license in advance. Do you understand what the representative is saying? He's saying what I just said earlier. People enter into private contracts all the time to which the state's not a party. The state, no, it under the bill doesn't re require you to file the affidavit. You can prove your marriage another way, but the state doesn't require you to file a deed either. You can prove the real estate contract took place some other way. I mean, go into court if need be and show your canceled check and uh, bring in the lawyer to testify. Uh, bring in the closing agent to testify. You don't have to file the deed. Now you file the deed so that you don't have to go to all that trouble. So there's a ready means of proving that you sold your house or you bought the house. And that's all we're doing with the Marital Contract Recording Act. So in other words, this lawyer Republican legislator would abolish the transfer of real estate in our nation unless buyers and sellers are licensed by the government. That is a positive legal system. So I hope today you've been able to see that essentially we don't operate as a common law legal system anymore. Not when this kind of testimony prevails. And next week we're going to look at William Blackstone and his explication of the nature of law so that you can understand the foundation for law that gave rise to the concept of natural law which gave rise to common law and the common law legal system. So I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.